Good morning. Um, my name is Erica. I haven't met all of you yet. Um, I'm an associate pastor here. I get to preach every now and then, uh, and I love it. So I'm very excited to be able to chat with you, um, talk to you about these verses. Um, the first chapters of Ephesians that David's been preaching about were very theologically dense. Um, a lot of, of Paul writing to the church about this new society, this new way of being, this new family. Um, so a lot of it was uh, slightly less practical, perhaps. And so today we're, we're shifting, we're shifting focus into um, the more practical side of things. Paul is saying, you know, here's where we've been, here's a little bit more about who we are now, and now here's what you get to do with this. So that's what we get to talk about today. Um, so I get, you know, I get to move my first time in the series, it could be an easy one, right? Like, so what do we do about it? Um, but really, these first 16 verses um, are kind of an overview. They're kind of setting the stage for what's going to come next about who we are, what um, how we're supposed to live. Um, and today is going to be kind of an overview of the overview. Because as my mom put it, when I was talking to her last week, and I told her which um, passage I was going to be preaching on, that is loaded. <laughs> and it is. <laughs> this is loaded. So we're going to do kind of an overview of this overview. Um, just to move us into what, what Paul wants to tell us next. Paul gets a new passport. In this, in this passage. Um, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. The pastors come from all sorts of different places, stories, places. Um, I think some of you know, but maybe not all of you, that I was a collegiate athlete, and specifically in the realm of track and field. I was part of the track team in college. We uh, Whitworth University, um, and I think a lot of people when they think about track, they think you know individual, right? I did when I first started um, in high school. When I first started throwing, I was a thrower. I did not run, no running. Uh, but when I first started on the track team, I joined because um, it was pretty individual, so I could win things on my own, and because it was co-ed. Because of course I wanted to do a sport where I could actually hang out with boys. Those were essentially the reasons that I did track. Turns out I was decent at it. So then when I shifted into college, um, I had my first real experience of a track team. Um, because in track, you could win individually, um, but when you get up to the collegiate level, you're always trying to win as a team. Uh, so I didn't really know what that was about because I was not part of teams that had any chance of winning actual um, group uh, <laughs> meets when I was in high school. Um, but then I got to Woodworth, where um, team is in all caps, and anything that you, any email sent, it's team, all caps. Um, team is so important. And so you get to attract me, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna win my event, say. In order for an entire track team to win the meet, um, it's a point system. Some of you may know this, but I think um, probably a number of you don't, because I really didn't know anything about this until college. Um, so each placement that you get in your individual events gives you points. So if you win your event, you get 10 points for your team. If you get second place in your event, you get 8 points for your team. Third place, 6. Fourth place, 5. Fourth place, 1. So each place gets a certain number of points, and at the end, um, each team sort of tallies, you get tallied what points you came up with from each of the different members on your team. So, um, yes, you can win individually, um, but there is this part of it where you, you have to 
be on the same page with the people on your team um, in order to get to that common goal. In other sports, you can, maybe not quite literally, but you could win a game, a basketball game, say, with yourself. Say you were just an amazing basketball player, um, you could hoop like no one else, and so you would go out and just fool everyone, and you could win a basketball game by yourself, say, against another team, um, assuming that the skill gap was big enough. Um, however, on a track team, you cannot win the team size, say, you cannot win the meets by yourself. Um, because even if you got first place in all your events, say you did four events, it's generally the most you're going to do. Um, let's say you did four events and you won all those events. That's 40 points. All the other team needs is to have, say, second place in five events, or um, two people in third and fourth in all those events where you got first, and another team would win. Um, so there's this sense in which you absolutely need each other on a track team. You absolutely need each other. Um, and when I think about what Paul is telling us about being the body, about doing this life together, about being unified and how important that is, obviously I'm a little biased, but my first thought was track team. Because yes, there are things that I'm going to specialize in, because I'm different than you. Um, we're not the same person. We don't have the same skills, the same experiences, um, the same gifts, the same call. Um, and so there are things that I'm going to focus on and that I'm going to become good at that maybe aren't really your thing. But in order to get to where we're going, I need you. And I need you to do your thing. I don't need you to do my thing. I need you to do your thing. So that's where we are when it comes to um, this overview, these 16 verses. We're looking at the practical, and Paul says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And he's been telling us about calling in these first few chapters. He's been telling us that we're called to live as a new family, together as a new family. We're called to hope. And so when we um, take a look at where he, Paul is taking us um, as a team, he gives us a little bit of info about ourselves individually, but he really homes in on that idea of unity. And so we're going to take a look at that today. Um, verse 2, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So right away, he's giving us the how-to. Right? He gives us um, the you have a calling, and then he gets right down to the nitty-gritty of this is how you need to live. And it's not all-encompassing. Um, his point in this, path, in this part of the letter is not to tell you this is the only way to live, this is the only way to do your life, because we're all different. But he does give us some foundational things um, that we need to keep in mind if we want to do this teamwork thing well. So right off the bat, he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Um, and the word for humility in the text um, is not about like, oh, I'm not great. It's more about recognizing the worth and value of other people in relation to yourself. That's the humility that he's talking about. Um, instead of working really hard to gain the respect of other people, um, working really hard to be in, uh, in good standing with other people, that comes from pride, but humility 
um, looks at other people and says, I'm going to give you respect because of your intrinsic worth, because of who God created you to be. Nothing else, no strings attached. That's humility. So humility and gentleness are paired in this. Um, and in other translations, they use the term meekness. Um, be humble and be meek. And I think that meek, uh, meekness gets a bad rap. So I want to like give us a little more time with it today. Um, so the Greek word that that word gentle or meek comes from is praotis, and a strong it means a strong personality that is nevertheless the master of self and servant of others. Master of self and servant of others without losing your strength. Um, the word, the, um, the core word where that comes from um, is actually taken from a military word. And that word was talking essentially, um, was used when they were talking about training a war force. So the war horses, they would, you know, however they did it, round up wild horses and sort of choose where they would fit best as far as the work they were going to do. And those that were going to become war horses were ones that showed meekness because their strength was, they were the top of the top in strength, um, in intelligence, in all the things that it took um, to be a good horse during a time of war. But they were also at the very top of listening and holding themselves back when their rider or you know whatever the job they're doing, I assume chariots, maybe they weren't always being ridden. But um, when when whoever was telling them what to do told them to do something, they could control that. So this concept of meekness does not mean weak. And I think sometimes we think that. I think when I think of being meek, a lot of times I think of the times we've been used to describe someone who's like, oh, she's very mousy and meek. Like, she, she must be really strong then. She must have a lot to say then. We need to be meek as God's people. Um, going, you know, bringing it back to the track analogy. So, during, in, when I did track, I did the discus. This, this is just a little insight into Erica's life. Uh, there you go. That's what it is. The nice thing about um, doing this in church is that probably none of you know what good form looks like. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's that's right. Um, so I threw the discus and I also threw the hammer. Can we go to the next slide? To the hammer. So for those of you who don't know, because I get this question a lot, this is the hammer. Right there. It's like a shot put on the end of a long wire and it has a handle. And you spin it around. It's very, uh. Dangerous? Yes. Yes, that's a good word. <laughs> but I'm just going to say, I think that the hammer throw is the prime example of being meek. Because, let me tell you, to throw the hammer well, you need to be very strong. Let's just say that. You need to be strong. Helps if you're also long. <laughs> but there is a certain level of strength that you need to have in order to hold on to that um, and not simply just be holding on for dear life as you spin in circles. The hammer is also the most technical track event. When you are swinging around a metal ball 
Um, the women's is, I think it's eight pounds, men's is 16 pounds. When you are spinning that fast with something on the end of a long wire, some trip on the force, it's pretty intense. I have fallen down numerous times. I have seen really unfortunate, dangerous things happen. So when you are throwing the hammer, you have to have your footing absolutely on point if you even want it to go straight, let alone go far. So in the process of this, sometimes four, you have to have so much control over what your body is doing. You have to be strong, but you can't just let your strength and your quickness just let it go. And nothing against sprinters, but you sprinters can kind of think you just let it go, right? You know, you're like you push um, as hard as you can, as fast as you can, right then and there. With the hammer, you cannot. You have to be in control. You have to know that you are strong. You have to be quick, but you have to be intentional with every step that you take, with every angle that the hammer hits, low to high. So as God's people, we are not called to back off, to do nothing, to say nothing, to be quiet, but we are called to be intentional with the strength that we're offered in the Holy Spirit. And then after, be hum humble, be gentle, and meek, and then be patient and bear with one another in love. When it comes to unity, I feel like we're the perfect pair, right? Be patient with people. Be tolerant of differences. That word is to bear with one another, is to say, I don't get that, but it's going to be okay. I don't understand why you did that, but what holds us together is stronger than my confusion right now or my frustration. And now it's not saying never speak up because that leads us into a whole mess of being passive aggressive um, and being silenced. We do need to engage with each other when there are things that frustrate us that we don't agree with. Um, but bottom line, as God's people, we need to be patient. We need to bear with one another in love. Love is the bottom line for unity. And so, from there, Paul takes us into kind of the why. So that's a little bit of the what. Those are the things that, um, that are so important that we have to have. And then we get into the what. Um, and there's a lot of what, or that's what, there's a lot of why in this passage. There's a lot of why. And so um, we're just going to touch on some of it. The next verse is, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity as God's people is not from us. We do not create it. We cannot create it. It is the unity of the Holy Spirit. And that's part of what gives us hope in our attempts to stay unified. Um, but thinking about if, if this unity is from the Holy Spirit, um, then why do we even need to maintain it? Because if it's holy, 
Holy Spirit at its origin, and it seems like it's kind of indestructible, right? Like, it'll be there no matter what we do, um, no matter how much we mess it up. So why bother seeking to maintain it? Um, and I know that people have different thoughts, but there are a lot of things you could say about this, but I do think that there's something to be said about maintaining the visibility of it. What does it look like when people look at God's church and see disunity and see discord and see Christians demonizing each other and see people um, treating each other in a way that that the question comes like how are they how are they those two people or groups how are they even both calling themselves Christian and Paul knows the danger of that Paul knows that people look at the church and they see something of God. And this is why we're shifting out of doctrine, because this is not about doctrine. Because we're going to disagree as Christians. We are. We're going to disagree about a whole host of things, and I think that's okay. Because one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There are a number of Christians that I know and love dearly um, with whom I disagree on certain things. Um, some of them I disagree very vehemently with. However, I do not disagree with them that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. I do not disagree with them <clears throat> about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I do not disagree with them about what Christ did for us and the love that God has, that God would send his Son to die on the cross, to be resurrected, to bring us near. I do not disagree with them on that. And I do think that It's not, it's, it takes work and practice, if you will, to learn how to disagree with people and be unified. That is not easy. It's not easy. Because when someone disagrees with me, I have to ask, am I right? Am I doing the right thing? Am I perhaps thinking of this the wrong way? I have to ask those questions of myself, and I don't like asking those questions of myself because once I decide something, I would rather just have it be that way. But engaging with people, staying unified with people when there are differences, offers us something um, that a lot of places we don't find because we're told to be alike. But uniformity, especially for or unity, especially for the church, is not uniformity. It's not. Why do you think our church is passionate about multi-ethnic community? There's a reason that we have conversations about ability. There are reasons that we engage about politics and how people believe different things and vote different ways. It's because we want unity. We do not need uniformity. And in fact, I think uniformity hurts us sometimes. I went to a conference last weekend, Christian Community Development Association, and uh, 
there is a speaker there in one of the group uh, talks. His name is Sean Castleberry. And he leads an organization called Mission Here in Chicago. Um, it's for essentially, it's for young adults um, to come together um, and figure out how to make change, right? How to do justice in their community. But part of a, a very intentional part of their mission, their wording, um, says across dividing lines. Across dividing lines. Um, and as he was talking, he shared about how important he thinks it is that everyone is at the table, even if you disagree with them. That everyone is at the table. Um, and one of the points he made that just really, um, it just got to my heart was he said that a lot of times we split this conservative liberal thing and, and we're divided in that way that, that some people are conservative and they're wrong and some people are liberal and they're wrong and you know, it's one or the other. But here's what he said. He said, conservatives have a systemic blind spot. Liberals have a solidarity blind spot. He says, I'll go talk to liberals about prison reform, about all that needs to change um, with regard to mass incarceration and um, what's wrong with our prison system. We'll have these conversations about change and they're so fired up and they want to make these, we get rid of these systemic injustices. And then I'll go to the prison and guess who's in the prison spending time with the incarcerated? The conservatives. We need each other. We need each other because we have blind spots. And that doesn't mean that we don't go head to head sometimes when we disagree with our brothers and sisters about how to love the way Jesus called us to love. But we have one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. I remember um, growing up and thinking that I don't, I'm sure no one said this to me explicitly, but I, I had the idea in my head that liberals could not be Christian. Liber, to be liberal was a really bad thing um, where I grew up. And so for whatever reason, you know, because of all the spoken and unspoken things, I just, growing up, thought that if you were liberal, you certainly weren't Christian. And now sometimes in Seattle, I, I do not believe that anymore. Um, and I think some people back home would probably think that I'm a little more liberal than I should be. But I also sometimes feel like in Seattle, there's a sense as though if you're conservative, you can't be Christian. Because you're not loving the way I think you should love. Because you are not being a Christian the way I think you should be a Christian. And we all are going to have ideas about how we should be Christian. Because that's being human, right? Once you believe something is right, you go with that. And sometimes your mind has changed and sometimes it's not. So what I'm getting at is that unity means everyone has a seat at the table. And sometimes you argue across the table. And sometimes you get angry maybe and you stand up and you storm out of the room, but you come back. And you, and you keep meeting together because you have one board and one faith and one baptism. And so sticking with the scripture, Paul also moves us toward talking about gifts, about 
how God is over all and through all and in all. Uh, but then shortly after, he shifts to talk about the gifts that Christ gives us. Um, and that each one of us has been given grace as Christ apportioned it. So he switches from this idea about all, this idea about the whole, the church as a whole, and shifts into this um, more singular focus. And that's where we get to see a little bit of his heart for the diversity of the body. For a team that is not just made up of throwers, but that has sprinters and jumpers, long distance, hurdlers, all the things that are necessary um, to ultimately reach the goal of succeeding and being fulfilled in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. And that diversity, I think, is it what, it's what makes unity beautiful, but it's also what makes unity hard. It's also what makes it work. And when I talk about coming together at the table, I'm not saying that, I figure out how to say this the right way, so that I don't throw anybody off too far. We live in a particular time and place. We each have a particular story and we have a communal story. So when we come to the table to talk about something, we have to take that into consideration because there are people who have been kept from the table. And this unity that's being talked about means everyone gets a seat at the table. And the way that Christ lived, the people that Christ lifted up and focused on and prioritized show us that if somebody has been kept from the table for 500 years because of oppression, because of racism, because of sexism, that we need to lift their voice up at the table. Everyone is at the table, and we decide that those whose voices are going to be lifted up are the voices that Christ lifted up in his life on earth. Does that make sense? Unity takes into consideration who we are, what we bring, our stories, what we've experienced. That is unity. Unity is not uniformity. If it was uniformity, then equality would work. And we would just all be on the same page, and we would all have exactly um, the same sort of level of abilities and opportunities, um, but that's not where we are. I wish it was, but it's not. We come to the table. The Spirit offers unity, and we pursue equity in the midst of that. We say, oh, you have been silenced? It's your time to speak. And maybe this person in that moment feels like they have something they really want to say. But when we are engaging in a way that says your story matters to me because your story matters to God, we don't have a problem listening to somebody who has not before been listened to. So, our unity and faith 
It, it's from the Spirit. It's because we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Father who's over all, in all, through all. And as Paul wraps this up, because I need to wrap this up, um, he talks about where we're going. Why are we doing this? Why are we being humble and meek? Why are we being patient and bearing with one another? Why are we pursuing unity, even though we are all so different? And sort of the goal that he offers us um, toward the end of this passage says that it's to equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And that attaining to means that we are meeting it. Not that we're supposed to get it for ourselves, but that we come closer and closer to the fullness of Christ. And it talks about what we won't be then. We won't be like infants tossed back and forth, going... um, not being able to stand our ground or be certain of anything. But as I speed up to the end, there's this part that I love. Probably one of my favorite, um, the joy of being a pastor is that I get to study this more than I think a lot of non-pastors do, because it's part of my job. And so I get to learn about these really cool details of the text um, and of the translation. And In the last verses, 15 and 16, it says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him, who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each work, each part does its work. And in 15, that phrase, speaking the truth in love, is not really in a full translation. There's not really um, an English way to translate that well. But instead, it's not necessarily about speaking aloud the truth. That's part of it. But a better way to say it um, that I found is that it's closer actually to truthing in love. We need to truth. Maintaining it, living it, doing it, being it, speaking it when that's necessary. The truth that we need to do and be is that we can be unified. We can. Even if you're upset. Even if you know that that person is wrong. Even if you can't believe who that person voted for. Even if you are completely offended by what that person said, we can be unified. We can also be honest. We can also be assertive and engaged. You better believe that there are times when I'm going to push back on a fellow Christian. But that does not mean that we cannot be unified as believers, as people who know that there is something more than this right here. As people who know that Christ is the head of the body. As people who believe that we have one faith and one baptism 
And our God is God over all, in all, and through all. We get to trust in that. And that keeps us unified. Just a thought um, from someone other than myself. Um, there's, there's a concept um, called Ubuntu. Some of you may have heard it. It was made famous by Desmond Tutu, um, Bishop Tutu. He um, utilized it as South Africa was um, transitioning from apartheid um, to a actual democracy. And he's essentially, it's difficult to render into English. Um, but the essence, they'll, they'll say, hey, so-and-so has Ubuntu. Okay? So if you have Ubuntu, you are generous, you are hospitable, you are friendly and caring and compassionate. You share what you have. It is to say my humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound up in yours. We belong in a bundle of life. We say a person is a person through other persons. It's not I think, therefore I am. It's rather, I am human because I belong, because I participate, and I share. A person with Ubuntu is open and available to others, affirming of others, does not feel threatened that others are able and good, for they have a proper self-assurance that comes from knowing that he or she belongs in a greater whole and is diminished when others are humiliated or diminished, when others are tortured or oppressed or treated as if they were less than who they are. There are a lot of ways that people are humiliated and oppressed. We are called to stand up against that, just as Jesus did. This concept sounds very familiar to what we've talked about in the past when we've talked about shalom, the biblical concept, the idea of peace that is more than just harmony, but that is my well-being dependent on your well-being. Sometimes I get upset at people, and I want, let's be real, sometimes I do rage, and I speak ill of them, and I think that I am justified because I'm standing up for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed. But I want us to consider at what cost. At what cost am I standing up for the people that I'm attempting to stand up for? Is it at the cost of another life? Am I demonizing someone else because I've seen them participate in demonization? And if so, how is that making change? I don't want anyone to leave here and think that we do not get to be angry about injustice. We do. But just like throwing the hammer, we need to utilize our strength. We need to be assertive. We need to not be pulled erratically by the anger, the rage, the frustration, the fear in us about what might happen. We get to be unified as God's people. We get to. And it's the Holy Spirit unity. We maintain it. 
but the Holy Spirit empowers it. This, all the different things that I decided to touch on, this is the life that's worthy of the calling we have received. We are called individually, and we are called collectively. So our foundation is unity. The provision are the gifts of grace. And it requires our participation as God's people. Amen? Uh, to wrap up, I would like us to do something uh, that potentially could make a few of you uncomfortable. Um, so please know you're always welcome to say no. Um, that's always an option. Um, but we got to do something really neat um, also at the conference that I went to. Um, and he had everyone stand up, so I'm actually just stand. And then as much as we are able, if we could grab hands with each other, um, make a long line, step out of your row a little bit if needed. Um, it doesn't have to be straight lines, but, but grab our hands. We're going to practice being unified. <laughs> Who that person is. All right? So let's pray. 